0: British-born author Nick Bunker has written books on the Mayfire Pilgrims, the Revolutionary War, and a biography of Benjamin Franklin. Lately, he turned to America and the world in 1950. His book is titled, In the Shadow of Fear. Nick Bunker, a graduate of King's College, Cambridge, and Columbia University, focuses on names like Joseph McCarthy, Harry Truman, Dean Acheson, Margaret Chase Smith, George Marshall, Robert Taft, Alger Hiss, Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong. In addition, Bunker pays close attention to the Korean War.
1: My name is Nate, and I'm part of the team at C-SPAN that brings you live coverage of Congress and the day's top political events, Unfiltered. As a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding, we're asking for your help to support C-SPAN's daily operations. Please visit cspan.org/donate to learn more and consider making a one-time or recurring tax-deductible donation. That's cspan.org/donate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
0: Nick Bunker, I'm looking at a piece of paper in front of me from June 1st, 1950. At the heading, it says, Margaret Chase Smith, Declaration of Conscience. Let me read just a paragraph and then you can put this into context of your book. She said on the floor of the Senate on that day, it is a national feeling of fear and frustration that could result in national suicide and the end of everything we Americans hold dear. It is a condition that comes from the lack of effective leadership, either in the legislative branch or the executive branch of our government. That was in 1950. What what was that all about?
2: Well, Senator Margaret Chase Smith is uh, a favorite character of mine. And she was giving this speech uh, on the Senate floor, uh, really in response to the activities of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Now, she was a Republican, uh, Senator Smith, Republican from Maine, the only woman senator in the Senate at the time. Uh, She knew McCarthy pretty well because she had sat alongside him on, on various Senate committees. Uh, And she had become increasingly worried and alarmed by the uh, activities of McCarthy in 1950 as he began his anti-communist crusade with his charge that the State Department was riddled with communist sympathizers. She was worried by the the fact that he was making what she thought were unsubstantiated allegations. She was worried by the tone of his activities. And that was really why she made this famous speech, which came to be known as the Four Horsemen speech. So Uh, she was... Go ahead. She was also uh, concerned about the Truman administration, too. Uh, she was very critical of Harry Truman as well as McCarthy, which is something which is often forgotten.
0: So what w- what got you interested? I know you've r- written about the Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin, lots of other things, uh, American. What got you interested in the 1950 mark?
2: Well, as you say, my previous books were about colonial history, uh... uh partly about early New England, also about Benjamin Franklin, and about the onset of the revolutionary crisis in the 1770s. But when I finished my Franklin book um, in 2017, 2018, I really felt that I needed to become a little bit more up-to-date because of what was going on in the world. Uh, 2018 was a year when we really saw a steep deterioration in relations between the United States and China. Uh, It was also the year, of course, in which we in the UK we uh, were coping with the consequences of our referendum on Brexit, our decision to, to leave the European Union. Uh, there was a sense of, of deepening chaos and disorder in the world. A lot of talk about great power competition. A lot of talk, in, in some quarters, about possibly a second Cold War. And that was really what, what led me to want to write about a period, a crucial period in the First Cold War, uh, when there were similar um, signs of discord um, and discontent on both sides of the Atlantic.
0: One of the things that got my attention were your epigraphs in front of each of the chapters. I'm just going to read one, and you can take off from there. I think we shall continue to win the Cold War, Senator Tom Connolly, September 1949. What was that about?
2: Well, I always like to start my chapters with an epigraph, because I want to to set the tone of things, if you like, by by quoting from uh, an eloquent uh, speaker from the period. Now... Connolly was speaking there in, in the fall of 1949, at a time when the Senate uh, and the House of Representatives were considering some important legislation. Uh, this was the legislation that would permit Harry Truman to send huge amounts of military aid to Europe. Uh, military aid for the formation of NATO. He wanted to send more than a billion dollars worth of military supplies to Britain, uh, to France and to the other countries in Western Europe to to beef up NATO. And of course the context of this was the concerns about the Soviet Union and particularly the concerns in the fall of 1949 because the Soviets had just detonated their first atomic bomb. They had tested that in in Soviet Central Asia in August uh, August 25th, 1949. So there was a deepening sense of concern about the Soviet Union, and a deepening concern about the fact that although NATO had been created, there was a North Atlantic alliance that existed on paper, as yet it didn't really have the wherewithal in terms of armaments and so on to to, to stand up to the Soviets if there were a crisis.
0: Do you have a thread that you like through this whole book that you did on purpose? Uh,
2: well, yes. I mean, What I was trying to, the book is, if you like, a kind of a parable in some ways, a kind of historical parable about the dangers of disunity and the dangers of discord in the face of of an external threat. Um, As I said, when I began to to work on the book in in 2018 or so, um, there was concern about great power competition. There was concern in some quarters about a possible second Cold War. And I wanted to say to people, look, if we're concerned about there being a second Cold War, Then let's look at what happened during the first Cold War. And let's look at the domestic circumstances in the United United States, uh, in France, in Great Britain and elsewhere, and to see how those were, um, how those existed at the time. And let's examine, for example, the question of whether or not the United States was actually in, in, in shape at that period to face the kind of challenges it had to confront overseas.
0: What did you find out about Harry Truman that made an impact on you? Well, I have
2: mixed feelings about about President Truman. The way I would put it is this. I think you've got to distinguish between Truman the man and the president, and on the other hand, the Truman administration. Now, I, I think President Truman had many admirable qualities. He was a genuinely modest and humble man. I mean, he had a, a personal lifestyle that was very simple and modest, and I think that's quite admirable. It's certainly not something one associates necessarily with his presidents today. Uh, he was also a man with a very clear set of principles and ideas, which he had developed really from from his from his early manhood. Uh, he was a great admirer of Woodrow Wilson, uh, before and during World War One. Both of Truman's, uh, both of Wilson's domestic policies, uh, his 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 New Freedom concept, and also his um, his intervention in World War One. So he had a set of clear principles and ideals, and, and Truman really was a man who believed in fairness, which is why his principal domestic agenda in at the time of this book concerns was what he called the fair deal. Now, I think the difficulty with Truman was really the Truman administration itself, um, which had a very mixed record. He was very good indeed at picking secretaries of state. He had two excellent secretaries of state, George C. Marshall and uh, Dean Atchison. He also had a very good defense secretary during the Korean War in the shape of uh, Robert Lovett. But the rest of his administration really didn't live up to those kinds of standards. Uh, the word that was often used about them was that it was mediocre. Uh, they were accused of being a mediocre administration. And the problem really was that they weren't very effective in terms of getting their domestic policies done. I think that's the difficulty I find with, with, with this particular period. A, a, a president with some admirable qualities, but an administration that in many ways was dysfunctional. Not least because the Democratic Party at the time was also a dysfunctional party.
0: What was the fair deal?
2: Well, the fair deal was Harry Truman's attempt to to carry forward, consolidate, and develop further the, the New Deal of, of Franklin Roosevelt. Now, when he came into office in 1945, Harry Truman began to speak about the Fair Deal. and He then developed it further after he was elected to the presidency again in, in November 1948. Um, It was the centrepiece of his State of the Union message in January 1949. And the Fair Deal would have been a a programme, quite an ambitious programme of legislation and reform. It would have included, for example, a new farming policy. It would have included measures to to strengthen the the labour unions. It would have included universal health care, a system of universal health insurance. It would also have included civil rights legislation. And it would have included a package of measures, for example, for federal aid for education and for projects for land reclamation and irrigation and so on in the West. So it was an ambitious package. Um, the difficulty was that it, it, ran out of, it ran out of steam, lost momentum, and Truman was never really enabled to enact anything more than kind of a fraction of it.
0: When you mention civil rights, I have to ask you, because you talk about this man in the book some, but if you walk over to the United States Senate Office Building, as you know, one of them is named after Richard Russell. That's right of Georgia a Democrat and he was in the same party with Harry Truman. What role did Richard Russell play during those times?
2: Well, Russell was one of the most influential Democrats uh, in Congress Um, He was probably among the, the top four or five Democrats in Congress at the time And of course he was the the leader of the Southern Democrats and the Southern Democrats were immensely powerful I mean half of the Democrats in the House of Representatives for example at this period came from from the old Confederacy or the border states of 1861. Now Russell's role here was um, really twofold. When it came to foreign policy, he was a firm supporter of, of Harry Truman's initiatives. Um, he was a great believer, for example, in air power, strategic air power, so of course he was delighted by the decision to uh, to build the hydrogen bomb. But on matters of domestic policy, uh, he was much less reliable from Truman's point of view. And in particular, of course, he was a staunch opponent of any civil rights legislation. And during the period that I deal with in 1949 and 1950, he worked with Republicans to in effect thwart the various attempts that were made um, partly by, uh, by black congressmen in Congress, uh, but also by Truman himself to, to enact some civil rights legislation. So unfortunately, the kind of vision for civil rights that Harry Truman had developed, uh, particularly in 1947, 1946, 1947, really didn't come to pass. And Russell played a major role in ensuring that it didn't.
0: How did you go about uh, researching the book? Where'd you go?
2: Well, I was—I uh, was fortunately I was able to do most of the research before COVID because when the COVID lockdowns began on both sides of the Atlantic in in 2020, of course, that put an end to my archival research. Uh, Fortunately, I'd already done uh, the bulk of it while I was in the United States before that period. I was actually in the United States uh, as the COVID lockdown started. I was on the last uh, British Airways scheduled flight, normal scheduled flight out of New York (laughs) before the COVID lockdown started. I got back to England and then uh, our lockdown started about a week later. So I had my research, fortunately, um, um, in the bag, so to speak. And it was done in, in, in various locations. Some it was done in New York, Columbia University, where they have excellent oral history collections. Um, I was able to use, of course, the National Archives uh, in near Washington, DC, um, various state collections and so on. So a, a great deal was done. Unfortunately, the, the effect of the lockdowns was I wasn't able to visit the Truman Library itself in in Independence, Missouri. But uh, they have excellent digitized collections and of course that was that was really um, saved that particular point. Um, so I had a, done most of the research before COVID began. And then, of course, during COVID, during the lockdowns, I was able to concentrate on, on writing and putting things into shape. And as I say, uh, digitization has been a great boon in the preparation of this particular book.
0: Uh, my questions may be, sound a little scattered because there's so much in this book. Uh, I want to ask you about the Venona papers, because when you get into the Alger Hiss and the Klaus Fuchs and all that, and we can talk about who they were, the Venona papers had, must have had some role with you. And where, where are they? What were they? And how did you use them?
2: Well, the Venona papers, of course, at this point were totally secret. They were a very closely guarded secret known only to people working in the upper echelons of the intelligence um, establishment in, in Washington. Uh, the Venona Papers were in fact a set of decrypts. They were decrypts of wire traffic between the Moscow and Soviet embassies abroad. Uh, these were uh, decrypts that had been, um, uh, effectively what had happened was that the, the American intelligence service, uh, particularly US Army intelligence, had broken the Soviet diplomatic code. And so they'd collected these these intercepts of radio traffic, and then over a long period of time, and, and after a great deal of hard work, a very complex endeavor, they had managed to decode what the Soviets were saying to each other. Now, at this particular point, as I say, this was totally secret. Within the higher echelons of intelligence assumption that it was known, and some of the most sensitive of the Venona decrypts uh, included references to uh, a man who may well have been Alger Hiss, who of course was um, at this particular point, hugely controversial figure, he was put on trial for perjury twice in 1949 and early 1950. Convicted of perjury, um, identified by some as, as a Soviet agent in the 1930s. So the Venona crypts pointed possibility that 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 Alger Hiss was a Soviet agent. Now at this time, as I say, this is a closely guarded secret. But it was a secret that, as I say, was known to the upper echelons of intelligence and it informed their thinking about the the possibilities of communist subversion inside the United States.
0: Talk about, for a moment, Klaus Fuchs. I know we can talk about Alger Hiss easily because it comes up a lot in, in this country. But Klaus Fuchs, German by birth, spent some time in your country, spent some time in this country. And then Stalin knows about the bomb that we're gonna drop before Harry Truman?
2: Stalin certainly knew that that the United States was working on, on an atomic device. He certainly knew that. Now, the role of Klaus Fuchs was simply this. Now, Klaus Fuchs was a physicist. He was a German physicist. He had been a member of the German Communist Party, and because he was a member of the German Communist Party, of course, he had left Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and he had made his way to England, where he had become a very senior scientist with the British. Um, He was, in fact, the head of theoretical physics at the British Atomic Research Establishment uh, just outside London. He had also spent time on secondment in the United States during World War II with the Manhattan Project, working at Los Alamos, where, of course, the atomic bomb was being developed by J. Robert Oppenheimer and his team. So Fuchs was, was privy to a great deal of secret work on the atomic bomb, and he was also aware of the early work on the hydrogen bomb, too. Now, of course, Fuchs was actually a Soviet agent. And this became known because of some of the Venona decrypts. The Venona decrypts appeared to point to the existence of an agent within the atomic research establishments, both in the US and in the UK. And the FBI and British intelligence as well and the British police were able to identify that agent as being Klaus Fuchs. He was arrested in England uh, early in 1950, subject to quite complicated interrogations, and he was eventually persuaded to make a confession. And the news of Klaus Fuchs's arrest and of his appearance in court in England in February 1950 caused an enormous stir. It caused an enormous stir in America in Britain actually didn't cause quite as much of a fuss because in Britain there was a lot less interest in and a lot less public knowledge about the, the atomic bomb program but in America it caused a huge fuss because it became it, it was taken by many to 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 be a sign of the sheer depth of Soviet infiltration so it's caused a great worry and of course it was all the more worrying because the the revelation that Fuchs had been arrested and brought up in court in England in 1950 on charges of espionage came only a matter of days after the conviction of Alger Hiss for perjury in New York.
0: So you said that Dean Atchison was a good Secretary of State for Harry Truman, but what happened in his relationship with Alger Hiss, Alger Hiss was at Yalta? Uh, and how does that fit in? And do, you, do we have a confidence today based on Venona that Alger Hiss was actually uh, a communist spy?
2: Well, to ask your second question first, I think the Venona decrypts, the evidence of Venona decrypts are not entirely conclusive about the identification of Alger Hiss as a Soviet agent. It's not 100 percent certain. However, what is clear is that during the 1930s, Algiers had certainly been involved with, with had certainly had communist sympathies. That seems to be clear from, the, from the, the, the details of the two trials. That seems to be clear. And it's also clear that at this particular point in January and February, 1950, even though people weren't aware of the full details of the Noda decrypts, it was a fairly natural assumption to link the Fuchs and the Hiss the and the, and the His cases together. So it did cause an enormous, an enormous row, and then that led only a matter of days afterwards, of course, to the further controversy aroused by Senator Joseph McCarthy's criticism, his claims that there was serious communist infiltration inside the State Department.
0: But why did Atchison stick up for Alger Hiss amidst all that, when everybody else was suggesting that he, uh, he had been a communist or was a communist? And well, how Alger much? It had, had, had quite a. And how much much of a story was it back then that Dean Acheson had stuck by him during the hearings and everything?
2: Oh, it was a very big story. Now, there were really two elements to this. The first element was there was a personal connection between the two men. Um, Donald Hiss, who was Alge-Hiss's brother, was a partner in the law firm Covington & Burling, uh, where... Dean Atchison had also been a partner. But in addition to that, Alger Hiss was a familiar, well known figure in Washington circles. He had been employed at the State Department for a long time. Uh, Atchison knew him well, and he had every reason, from his point of view, to see Alger Hiss as a, as a, as a high quality individual who had done very good work in Washington. Atchison, from his point of view, had no reason to doubt what he thought was Alger Hiss's
1: integrity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: epigraph and this leads into chapter four to be a successful politician you have to be on intimate terms with sin william j o'dwyer mayor of new york why did you use that
2: well mayor o'dwyer of new york was was a fascinating character i think he was a man who actually achieved a great deal in his career um he was an irish american democrat from brooklyn uh, he was actually an Irish immigrant. Uh, he was then a policeman in Brooklyn, and he became mayor of New York after World War II. And he was up for re-election in 1949. Now, O'Dwyer uh, did a great deal for New York. Uh, he was a great builder of public housing. Um, he was the ally of Robert Moses, the the, the famous Robert Moses, the uh, the builder of the Cross Bronx Expressway and the man who kind of shaped the infrastructure of New York. And D- Dwyer and Moses worked closely together. Dwyer was in many ways, as I say, a very astute, very shrewd politician, did a great deal for New York City. But unfortunately, he was an Irish-American Democrat from Queens, and uh, from Brooklyn, um, at a time when New York City democratic politics was still heavily influenced by political machines. And those political machines had some shady connections, Uh, O'Dwyer fell foul of this. Um, O'Dwyer fell foul of the fact that he was linked to a man called Frank Costello, who was the most powerful uh, organized crime figure in America at the time. Uh, People were able to link the two men together. They had had some dealings with each other. In addition to that, uh, O'Dwyer fell foul of the fact that there was um, corruption in the New York Police Department. Uh, At the time, New York was was beset by a huge problem of illegal gambling, numbers rackets and so on and so forth. And in 1949 and 1950, it was revealed that these uh, illegal crime syndicates or illegal gambling syndicates had been paying off the police, particularly in Brooklyn. O'Dwyer had always been very close to the police department, a former policeman himself, strongly supported by the uh, by the policeman, by the New York Police Department. And when this scandal broke as break it did in in 1950, O'Dwyer became a casualty. Uh, O'Dwyer was in fact had to resign as mayor of new york uh, he was appointed by harry truman to be u.s ambassador in mexico but his career ended the reason it's important really is because what o'dwyer um emblemizes or what he what he kind of symbolizes if you like is the problems the democratic party had at the time with its with its connections with these these political machines um, it was partly because of o'dwyer that the that the word corruption came to be associated with the truman administration uh, you i'm sure you'll be aware that that 1952, during the November 52 election, which of course led to the presidency of Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, people said there were three issues, uh, Korea, communism, and corruption. And the corruption issue partly came about because of the kind of revelations uh, that were made about Mayor O'Dwyer and his administration in New York. Harry
0: Truman, president since April of 45, all the way up to 1952. When you started writing about this, how popular was he right as you lead up to 1950?
2: Well, he'd won a a tremendous victory in in November 1948, a a victory which many thought was against the odds. Uh, Many pundits and pollsters had predicted that that Truman would lose the election in November 1948, um, that he would lose to his opponent, the Republican Thomas Jew of New York. But nevertheless, Truman won. But the problem Truman had was that his popularity had always been related to one particular factor, and that was the economy. If you look at Truman's popularity ratings throughout his administrations, they tended to go up and down according to, for example, the rate of inflation or the or economic prospects. When inflation was high, his popularity went down, and when inflation was low, his popularity rankings went up. Now, during 1949, he suffered from the fact that there was a recession. Uh, first half of 1949, there was quite an economic recession that was quite alarming at the time. Actually, turned out to be quite mild, but nevertheless, it was quite alarming. And that led to a big plummet in the popularity ratings of Harry Truman by the fall of 1949. And then a whole series of events occurred, which kind of caught him off guard and led to his popularity to fall even more during 1950. So it was quite a low ebb when the Korean War began in, in June of that year.
0: What started the Korean War?
2: Well, it was Joseph Stalin who started the Korean War. Uh, it was Joseph Stalin who who gave the go-ahead for um, Kim Il Sung, the dictator of North Korea, to invade the South in in June 1950. I mean, that's now very clear. There was a lot of controversy over this for for many years, but the controversy was kind of settled in the 1990s when the Soviet archives began to be revealed. Um, I say began to be revealed because they haven't still not entirely open, and of course now in the last year or so they've kind of become closed again. Um, but uh, it became clear uh, when the archives were opened that it was Stalin himself, who at the end of January 1950 personally gave the authorization for Kim Il-sung to begin preparations for the invasion that occurred on June 25, 1950.
0: As you studied that whole period and you go back to Yalta, you go back to Potsdam after the war was over, uh, did we and Britain win or lose at the table with Joseph Stalin?
2: Well, that's a very complicated question. Uh, and it's one which, of course, Winston Churchill pondered a great deal in the years that followed. I think the answer to that is that, that uh, the mistakes had probably been made earlier than that. I think what ought to have been clear, really, by the fall of 1944 was that uh, the possibility of, of a, a post-war accommodation with, with Joseph Stalin really wasn't there. Uh, it should have been clear from the from fall of 1944 after the way in which... Um, uh, Stein behaved towards Poland, that he was going to be a very difficult character to deal with. Now, I think the deals that were done at Yalta at Potsdam were probably as good as could be done, given the kind of balance of forces, given where the various armies had settled had ended up in Europe at the end of World War II. Nevertheless, from the very, from the moment really that the Yalta and, and Potsdam agreements were, were, were concluded, from that moment forward, uh, critics, critics in the United States and, and elsewhere, critics in Europe too, already began to argue that there'd been a kind of betrayal of, of Eastern Europe. Now, I don't think the word betrayal is appropriate, but the fact of the matter is that these deals were not as good as they should have been.
0: So put this into context for us, in February of 1945, at Yalta you have FDR Churchill and Stalin then FDR dies in April and then in July you have the Potsdam conference and there you have Churchill for a while and then you have Clement Attlee from the from Great Britain then you have Stalin but then you have Truman how did Truman do compared to and how do you think FDR himself did he was so sick when he was at at uh, Yalta
2: well, as I say, I think these deals were was really as effective as could have been, given given what the situation was, given where the armies had ended up at the end of World War Two, given the huge military strength that the, that the Soviets could wield, uh, and given what they had already achieved. I think the difficulty really was earlier on when um, the Allies, the Western Allies, failed really to recognise the kind of person, the kind of regime they would be dealing with after after World War Two. They tended to think that they could maintain a degree of cooperation, a degree of harmony with Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union, which I think, don't think was really realistic.
0: So going back to the cabinet of uh, Harry Truman, who was not effective? You name those that were effective like Lovett and Atchison and some others, but who, who, who was not effective?
2: Well, one character was not effective was the Treasury Secretary, a character called John Snyder. Um, John Snyder, kind of a forgotten figure, uh, he was a treasury secretary at the time that, um, that I'm writing about in, in, in my book In the Shadow of Fear, in 1949 and 1950. Uh, the difficulty with him was that he was really not, uh, he was not particularly on top of the economics of his brief He was not a particularly effective um, negotiator. Uh, And he was symptomatic of of this tendency in the Truman administration for there to be a a lot of unevenness. Uh, There were some like Atchison and and George Marshall who were very on top of their briefs. There were others who were really much less effective. But it wasn't really just, just John Snyder. In general, there was a tendency in the Truman administration not to be able to carry through and execute what the president was actually seeking to achieve. The Justice Department is another example. Now, with a view, for example, to the question of civil rights. Now, Harriton was unable to get through Congress any significant civil rights legislation. It simply wasn't possible because of the the sheer power of the Southern New Democrats at the time. It ought to have been feasible, though, to use the Justice Department more aggressively to to implement the kind of civil rights implement existing legislation would have to be possible to use the Justice Department to be more effective, uh, and, and they didn't do so. There was a tendency in, in the Truman administration to say for a kind of um, a sort of a fuzziness and a vagueness about what you might call managerial government. There was also difficulties, I think, in terms of the way they prepared legislation. Uh, the legislation often wasn't as, as carefully drawn up, as carefully planned and programmed as it might have been. They ran into big problems, for example, with their universal health care legislation where they were unable to devise a kind of a program that could command widespread popular support. And so that kind of ran out of steam as well. Also in the face of a huge amount of lobbying by, by interest groups who were opposed to exactly what they were proposing, particularly from the, the medical profession.
0: As you know, during that period in the early 50s and all, the Republicans got control of the House and Senate for a couple of years, which they hadn't had for years and years. And then it went on all the way up until the 80s, uh, until the, the House of Representatives turned Republican, What impact did the House – why did it go Republican for a couple of years in that period when Harry Truman was president? And what impact did that have on his fair deal? Well,
2: that was November 1946. That was when the Republicans gained control of Congress. And the reason for that really was just down to that single word, inflation. Uh, Now people had always known that after World War II ended, there would probably be a burst of inflation. Because during World War II, the American economy would have been quite tightly controlled. There were various, all kinds of, of administrative mechanisms in place to, to, to keep prices down, to keep wages down. Um, also, there was a high taxation as well. So that the amount of demand in the economy was, was artificially kept under control. Now, when those controls were dismantled after the war ended in 1946, it was kind of inevitable there would be a burst of inflation because there would be all kinds of people with money in their pockets uh, wanting to spend them on, on new apartments or on new washing machines or cars or refrigerators or whatever else it might be at a time when supply was still short because the economy was still converting back from wartime production to domestic production. So there was a huge burst of inflation. The trouble was that the Truman administration was really quite, um, they they didn't handle that, that dismantling of controls as well as they might have done. So the burst of inflation was really quite severe in 1946, at a time also of a lot of labor unrest. There were great waves of strikes in 1946 and 1947. What happened was that Harry Truman ended up taking the blame for this, and that's really why Congress went Republican in November 1946. And they held on to, to, to Congress for two years. And during that time, the Republicans were quite effective. Uh, there were two big things the Republicans did which left a big mark. The first was uh, they passed a thing called the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, which covered labor unions. And that, to some degree, rolled back some of the legislation, pro-labor legislation that, that Franklin Roosevelt brought, brought in in 1935. And the other thing the Republicans did, which was very effective, was they cut taxes. Uh, they slashed income taxes in 1948 uh, by about $5 billion. Now, $5 billion today is not a lot of money, but it was a great deal of money in 1948. They slashed uh, income tax by by $5 billion, and as a result, they opened up a big hole in the federal budget. And that big hole in the federal budget became a really big problem for Harry Truman in his second term, in 1949 and 1950, because it meant that he had a, had a problem with his defence budget. He couldn't afford to spend as much money as he should have been doing on, on, on the Pentagon. And he couldn't afford to promote some of the other great programs that he wanted to do under the Fair Deal. So that Republican period in 1946 to 1947 with control of Congress actually had quite a big effect, uh, both on the labor front and also in terms of, of undermining the kind of liberal programs that Harry Truman wanted to implement.
0: Here's another Epigraph, and I'm reading it primarily to, because if you think about where we are today in this country, this was back in 1949, 40 53. It's from Joseph Martin, who was a minority leader. He did become speaker once for a couple of years. Our political system was out of joint. Instead of two healthy parties, we had one party bloated with the too long tenure and another party reduced to dark frustration. In this unwholesome state, some Republicans turned to extremism." I kept reading in this book, and I kept thinking about today, and how about you? Did you have the same reaction, uh, that uh, there was a lot of uh, things that happened then that uh, it sounds like the same thing that's going on now?
2: Oh yes, definitely. I mean, that's really what I meant earlier when I was talking about the book being kind of a historical parable about the dangers of of disunity and discord and polarization. Um, Joseph Martin, the Republican there, was describing Primarily, he was talking about McCarthyism. He was talking about Senator Joseph McCarthy, not just McCarthy. There are other Republicans, too, who, who are allies of McCarthy. But that's what Martin was talking about. And as indeed, yes, it struck me as something which which does have parallels with our situation today in 2023.
0: Why did you go to Columbia University? What drew you there?
2: Huh. Well, uh, I, I graduated from, from as from Cambridge University here in the UK in, in the early 1980s, and what happened was this, um, I'd always been fascinated by American history anyway, um, but in uh, 1980, I, I worked uh, for the summer um, in Venice in Italy, I worked in a museum in Venice and Italy, and I met a number of Americans. Uh, there was an American Air Force Base, big American Air Force Base near Venice called Aviano, I'm sure. Some of the listeners will know about this. It's a very big American air force space, one of the biggest in NATO. And a number of the US air force personnel from there were working in the same museum that I was. Uh, they had just left the air force and I was working with them. I got to know them very well. And they said to me, "No, you really must come and live in the United States. You really must come over and, uh, and uh, spend some time there. And so what I did was um, I applied for a, a fellowship to study at Columbia University and I was successful. And so I came to Columbia in, in 1981. And also there was another aspect to it, which was that I wanted to study under a particular academic at Columbia. A chap who's now very famous, uh, quite controversial, the late Professor Edward Said. He was um, teaching there, and I wanted to uh, join his seminars, and that's what I did. And so I spent two years living in New York. Uh, During the course of that time, however, uh, it was uh, was a difficult economic period in the UK. I realized that I wasn't going to be able to pursue uh, an academic career, and so I decided to look around for something else to do. So I enrolled in the Columbia University Journalism School uh, with a view to getting a job on a newspaper when I got back to England, which I did in Liverpool uh, when I arrived back in 1983.
0: Why was Edward Said, who's deceased, controversial when you were in his class?
2: Well, he was controversial because, of course, he was Palestinian. And he was, at that time, uh, the leading Palestinian intellectual probably in the world. And he was particularly concerned, obviously, with with that particular issue. Um, 1982, when I was there, was was a was a quite a difficult year because that was the year, if you recall, during which the uh, we had the um, Israeli Defence Forces were engaged in in Lebanon. Uh, It was the year of the of the notorious massacres at Sabra and Shatler in in Lebanon. Uh, Edward Said was very heavily involved in in all kinds of discussions about these matters. He was writing a great deal. He was speaking a great deal. He was a controversial figure as a Palestinian operating in New York. Now, actually, the reason I had come to study, and it wasn't because of that, I was, I'd come to study under him primarily because I was so impressed by his, I was at that time uh, a student of literature, and literary history, and that actually was my primary reason for going to study under Said. But I found myself there at a time when this other issue, the Israel and Palestinian issue, what the Israel and Palestine question, was enormously live, it was enormously, uh, it was enormously controversial, and he was right in the middle of that controversy. How many years did you spend with the Financial Times and what did you cover? I was at the Financial Times for about six years. And I began as a general news reporter there. I was also for a while a parliamentary correspondent. Uh, And then I moved on to the financial side of the paper. I covered the banking and insurance industries. And then I ended up working on a thing called the Lex column. The Lex column is the kind of investment commentary column of the Financial Times. It's a bit like Heard on the Street in the Wall Street Journal. And I worked on that column as well for a couple of years before I moved into the city of London myself, into the financial markets.
0: In this book you've just written, there's a lot of talk about journalists. I'm going to take a quote from another epigraph uh, and ask you how this fits. Uh, This is uh, Chapter 8. In the age of atomic energy transmuted into a weapon which can destroy great cities, a serene president of the United States sits in the White House with undiminished confidence in the triumph of humanity's better nature. That was from Arthur Crock of the New York Times, February 1950. Why'd you use that?
2: Well, you know, this was really was a golden age of journalism. There were some superb columnists at this period, very eloquent columnists, uh, famous figures at the time, Walter Lippmann on the New York Herald Tribune, also Joseph and Stuart Alsop, on the, also on the New York Herald Tribune. There was a great journalist in the New York Times called James Reston, Scotty Reston, who was a hugely important figure and a really superb journalist. And there was Arthur Kroc. Uh, Arthur Crock was the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, and he was quite a, a very august figure. Had a beautiful house in Georgetown, uh, a very important social figure, and he was um, a member of a club, a private club, um, to which Harry Truman was invited for a dinner in February 1950, just after uh, the conviction of Alger Hiss and just after the news of the of the um, arrest and uh, putting on trial in London of, of Klaus Fuchs, a spy. And what happened was this Um, Arthur Crock suggested to Harry Truman that it might be a good idea if maybe he, Arthur Crock, interviewed the president. for the president to put his side of the story and to put his case for what he was doing, and to, to if you like, um, relaunch the Truman administration. Now that was quite a controversial thing to do at the time because actually in those days, presidents weren't supposed to give one-on-one interviews to exclusive interviews to a particular journalist. But Harry Truman did that, and the words you quote come from the Arthur Croc's piece that arose from that interview. And it caused a great big row at the time because the rest of the, wa- the, of the press corps in Washington were very upset that uh, the president should have given a one-on-one exclusive interview to Arthur Croc. They were very upset indeed. So it caused a great big row and it turned out to be counterproductive as these things often are because the controversy about it kind of rather drowned out Harry Truman's message.
0: You mentioned Walter Lippmann. Let's take another epigraph quote from him in March of 1950 the Truman administration has not had for over a year a single new interesting and constructive idea to which the nation can rally.
2: Well that's that's again a very interesting quotation because you see uh Generally speaking, Harry Truman has a pretty good press these days from from historians, from academic historians or popular historians. He, he's a historian who's he's, he's a president whose reputation has really risen over the years. And it's worth remembering that at that particular point, And this is, by the way, before the Korean War began at that particular point, that wasn't the view, the prevalent view of Harry Truman. Uh, there were many commentators, uh, such as Walter Lippmann, who who took a very negative view of Harry Truman and of the Truman administration. They they used that word mediocre, mediocre to apply to it. Now what uh, Lippmann was really talking about there was the fact that that Harry Truman had to some extent lost control of Congress. He simply couldn't get legislation passed. And the legislation he did try to pass was, in in Lippmann's view, unrealistic. Lippmann was really talking about there, for example, about the failure to pass universal health insurance legislation, the failure to get a civil rights bill through, uh, and the fact that Harry Truman had got stuck fiscally. Uh, because of the great big hole in the budget that the Republicans had opened up with their tax cuts in 1948, Harry Truman really couldn't do very much about anything. And that really was what um, Lippmann had in mind. I think Lippmann was also really saying that, that there was a sense in which the Democratic Party as a whole had kind of run out of ideas. So, Remember, by now, the Democratic Party had been in power. They'd had the White House for nearly 20 years. And they were starting to look like a kind of a tired party. They were starting to look like a stale party. And that's the kind of thing that Lippmann had in mind.
0: Talking about journalists, you suggest that reporters from the Washington Times Herald helped write the Wheeling, West Virginia speech for Joseph McCarthy. What was that speech, and how much did they write of it?
2: Well, McCarthy was very close to certain journalists. He was particularly close to journalists who were associated with with, um, the McCormack family. Colonel Robert McCormack, who was proprietor of the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Times Herald that you mentioned, and the New York Daily News. And McCormack very strongly believed that there was a a communist conspiracy inside the United States. He also very much believed that the, the, Democrat, the democratic uh, hegemony of the country needed to be ended. And he was determined to see a Republican president in 1952. He was determined to see uh, Truman's party ousted from power. And he did lend, indeed, a great deal of support to Joseph McCarthy. And it is indeed the case that the Wheeling speech, the famous Wheeling speech of February 1950, in which Joseph McCarthy launched his anti-communist campaign, was to a large extent concocted and devised and sourced from journalists for the McCormack papers, whether the Chicago Tribune or the the Washington Times Herald.
0: What did you think of the speech? I assume you read it.
2: Oh yes, I mean it's it's of course the funny thing about that speech is we're not quite sure what McCarthy actually said, because the versions of it that survive are the, the, the if you like the, the typewritten transcripts um, of of a uh, of his of his speaking notes. But McCarthy was notorious for the fact that he used to deviate from his speaking notes. We don't really know exactly what he said, but we do know enough to know that it was an it was a, a very uh, explosive incendiary speech that caused a huge impact. The central allegation in it was the. Allegation that there were 57 card-carrying communists inside the State Department headquarters in Foggy Bottom in Washington. That was the central charge. The numbers were a little bit vague. Some of said 57, some of said more than 200. But that was the gist of it: that the communists, uh, that there were Communist Party members or sympathizers, actually in the upper echelons of the State Department. How
0: much attention was paid to that speech right after he gave it? Well, initially, for the
2: first few days, not very much. Uh, There were wire service reports from the Associated Press uh, which circulated of the speech. and, and initially, these reports were only carried really by, by state local city newspapers in, 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 in the United States, not really by the big uh, big papers in the East Coast. But over the next few days, what happened was that Joe McCarthy just kept on repeating the same message. He gave more or less exactly the same speech a few days later in Reno, Nevada. And he talked incessantly to the press, and he was pursued over the, over the coming days by kind of posse of reporters from, from one city to another as he went on a speaking tour of Nevada and California. And so gradually, the speech became more and more controversial. Gradually, it got more and more coverage. And within a week or so, McCarthy had become a kind of a national sensation. Now, up until that point, McCarthy had been quite an obscure figure. Uh, he was a very young senator, the youngest man in the Senate. He'd only been in, 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 in the Senate since, 19, since January 1947. Uh, this was really what made his name. And one of the reasons for that, unfortunately, was the way the Truman administration reacted to it. The Truman administration reacted to it in quite an explosive fashion. Uh, and and because they reacted in quite an explosive and angry fashion I think they probably made more of the story than it should have been and then what McCarthy did was, a few weeks later, he went onto the floor of the Senate, and again he repeated the same allegations at much greater length than for hours on end, standing for hours on end on the Senate floor. And that really pushed the the issue right into the foreground of public attention, coming, as I say, just after the, the arrest of, of Klaus Fuchs, and also coming just after the conviction of Algehus. Put all those things together, and you had your sensation.
0: Going back to where way we started, the... Declaration of Conscience speech by Margaret Chase Smith. Here's just another paragraph. That was on June 1st, 1950. Uh, but By the way, before I read this, when she gave that speech, how controversial was Joseph McCarthy at that point?
2: He was certainly becoming controversial. He had he'd turned himself into something of a national celebrity. Now, it's quite striking that at that particular point, if you had an opinion poll and there were many opinion polls at the time, Gallup polls have been around since the 1930s. If you had an opinion poll and you asked Americans to list the most important issues of the day, mostly they would talk about bread and butter economic things, the high cost of living, for example, or they'd talk about strikes, or they'd talk about worries about the economy. They didn't necessarily list the Cold War as being their top priority. Now, what McCarthy did was to push the Cold War and to push issues about communism way up the agenda. And so in the course of a few months, he transformed the kind of public debate in the United States. He achieved record, levels of name recognition that other senators could only envy. And by by really May, June of, of that year, at the time she gave that speech, he had become a national sensation. And that was quite a remarkable thing for him to achieve. And he did it really because he talked to the press incessantly, he took risks in terms of what he said. He made allegations that he couldn't substantiate, but he just went on making them. Um, and also, other leading Republicans began to fall in alongside him, uh, particularly the most distinguished Republican of the time, which was, was Senator Robert A. Taft. Robert A. Taft was the uh, the de facto leader of the Republicans in Congress. And a really important moment came in, in March, April 1950, when he decided to throw in his lot with Joseph McCarthy. Once that had happened, then McCarthy could not fail to be, become even more of a celebrity. And that, that was really what Margaret Chase Smith was responding to. She was responding to that because she found it alarming. She belonged to a more liberal element within the Republican Party. She wasn't a follower of of Senator Taft. She belonged to a more liberal element, and she was very concerned. At the same time, though, She was also very concerned about the Truman administration. She felt the Truman administration was directionless. She didn't like some of their policies. She felt they weren't spending enough on defense. She was worried about confusion in high places with various members of the Truman administration fighting each other. She was worried about the defense secretary, a chap called Lewis Johnson, who she thought was a particularly weak um, leader uh, and a particularly uh, difficult character. And so put that all together and you had her Four Horsemen speech. It was both an attack on McCarthy, but it was also an attack on the Truman administration too. And you pointed
0: out earlier that she was the only woman in the Senate. Today there are 25. From her speech, this quote, Those of us who shout the loudest about Americanism in making character assassinations are all too frequently those who by our own words and acts ignore some of the basic principles of Americanism. As a Brit, how do you read the word Americanism? What does that mean?
2: (coughs) Well, that's a good question. How do I read the word Americanism? I think what she had in mind was a basic commitment to obviously basic commitment to the to the to, to what she saw as the principles of the constitution a commitment to certain uh, to principles of fair play, the rule of law. she meant I think um, a commitment to to freedom of speech. she meant. All the kind of things which we regard as being, which she would have regard as being a sort of central elements of the American way of doing politics. And what she worried, of course, what she was worried about was that, that President McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, we feel like was trying to change the rules of the game. He's going to change the rules of the game in a way that she thought was fundamentally destructive. So there was a,
0: another thing that you write about uh and one one part of it it was the speech that atchison made at the at the press club but it's, it's nsc 68. why why was that so important back then what what and what does it mean
2: nsc 68 was a document um drawn up by the national security council which is called called nsc 68 technically a top secret document although in fact uh Word of what was in it seemed to kind of leak out in Washington quite extensively. NSC 68 was a, a policy statement uh, for America's stance in the Cold War. It was drawn up by Michael Paul Nitze, who was the head of policy and planning at the State Department, working for Dean Acheson. So it was very much the product really of the two men together, and it was intended to be a kind of a rallying call. Uh, NSC 68 was based on the premise that the Soviet Union. Uh, was devoting an enormous chunk of its economic output to preparations for war, that the United States was falling behind, not just the United States, but also the other Western allies, Britain, France, Italy, etc., And that there needed to be a kind of a, a rallying call should go out so that America should also, America and its allies should, should try and equal the, the Soviet Union in terms of their spending on, on, on military output and prepare themselves for a long struggle. That was really the core of it, the notion that the struggle with the Soviet Union, the Cold War, would be a long confrontation and that the United States would need to mobilize all its own resources and the resources of its allies to bring that that struggle to a successful conclusion. So that's what NSC-68 was. Now it didn't specify particularly figures about how much America should spend on, on, on the military. but. Probably it would have involved, if it had been fully implemented as intended, it would have involved like a trebling of America's military budget. Now, what happened, of course, was that NSC-68 was kind of overtaken in a way by the outbreak of the Korean War. Much of what NSC-68 envisaged did come to pass, but it didn't come to pass in quite the way Addison intended. What Atchison wanted to do was to have a kind of um, a, core, a careful, carefully planned Diplomatic strategy to, to, to arouse and rally the support of, of all the Western allies towards the United States in this I- expansion of its military power um, didn't happen in quite that way. Instead, it all happened in a rush. It all happened kind of a headlong and kind of disorganized way during the Korean War. But nevertheless, you know, NSC 68 is kind of a, a very important document because it, it marked the beginning of, if you like, the major phase of the Cold War.
0: What mark would you give Harry Truman on his handling of the Korean War?
2: Well, I, I'm afraid to say, I I think there are a number of, of, of issues there. Uh, there was a failure of deterrence. Uh, the United States did give some some signals to the Soviet Union and to North Korea, which were unfortunate. Uh, the signals they gave in the first half of 1950 suggested that they might not go to war on behalf of South Korea. So there was a failure of deterrence. Uh, there was also a failure of readiness. Uh, the American military, I- in June 1950, had been depleted to some degree. Uh, The military budget had been kept down to an unrealistic level of of about $13 billion a year. So the army in particular uh, didn't have the resources it should have had. So there was a failure of readiness. There were also failures of intelligence uh, in the lead up to the Korean War, uh, because signs that should have been detected of the activities of of Kim Kim Il-sung in North Korea were not picked up as they should have been. So there were a series of problems before the war began. And then during the war, I think, there was, the war was well handled for the first year or so, uh, when you saw this remarkable recovery by the United States, uh, by the U.S. Army and by the Marine Corps and so on, uh, from the first, it, from, from the initial period of, of defeat. But then it settled down into, into a long period of attrition, and that long period of attrition, I think you can argue, was something that, that could have been avoided. Uh, the kind of approach that President Eisenhower took, which I think was more decisive and more definite, which came about after he became president, was something that really should have been tried earlier on. Uh, it, it'll always be controversial, it should always be very controversial. The terrible thing about the Korean War, of course, is, is the appalling cost of it in terms of casualties on the Korean Peninsula. And we're talking about millions and millions dead in in Korea. No one really knows exact figure. Of course, you can also add the huge losses that, that China suffered from its intervention. We're talking about a war that maybe cost three or four million lives, and that really is a, a staggering death toll. Um, something which I think is is often forgotten and really needs to be sort of much more front and centre in people's consciousness of that period. The, the sheer cost of this of this appalling incident, which, as I say, was it was Stalin's war. Right? It was the war that Stalin wanted to fight. By way of proxies, uh, both Kim Il Sung and Mao Tse-tung. But it was also a war that could have been avoided if the United States had been more ready, and if it had been, uh, if, it had been, if, it had been if it had given signals of its determination, instead of that kind of failure of deterrence and readiness, which we actually saw.
0: Thirty-six thousand Americans lost their lives in the Korean War. Uh, Mao, 1949, communism, Taiwan. It's all in the book. We're still talking about it all these years later. How did Mao become the head of China?
2: Well, Mao became the head of China uh, because, of course, he won the Chinese Civil War between 1940, 1945 and 1949. Um, and, and he won a series of sweeping victories in 1949 as, as his, his opponents, Chiang Kai-shek and the, the nationalists, the Kuomintang, simply fell apart during that year. Now, of course, he'd had a long period of preparation. I mean, Mao's period of preparation as, as leader of the Chinese Communist Party went back really to the to the early 1930s. Um, October 1949, he proclaims the People's Republic of China, and by that time he is the undisputed leader of China, although there was still a great deal of work to do before the Communist Party could fully consolidate its authority over the whole of the country. Um, and then the key moment, of course, is later in that year when, when Mao went for the first time to Moscow to meet Joseph Stalin a meeting which he had been wanting to achieve for several years, it had taken a long time for Stalin to actually agree that it should occur. And this produced the, the very important moment in February 1950 when the two men signed their, their treaty of alliance between China and, uh, and the Soviet Union. Another great and very important moment because, of course, that was another one of these moments like NAC-68, like the Soviet detonation atomic bomb, which really marked the kind of maturation of the Cold War. This, this began the really dangerous phase of the Cold War uh, when the two sides became kind of locked in, uh, in, in confrontation.
0: So what part of doing this book did you, did you personally learn the most? Because you've been doing this stuff for the last several years, I mean, writing these books and everything. What, what, where did you learn something?
2: I think what I found most fascinating was the, the, the interplay between the kind of domestic politics in the United States and the foreign policy. I mean, I think you have to, to see the two things as being continuous with each other, the foreign policy and the domestic politics kind of interact with each other all the time. and. and... The conclusion I, I came up with, which is not, which is in a sense kind of common sense, is that you can't really have effective foreign policy unless you've got unity on the domestic front as well. You've got to have a degree of consensus about both, or else you're not really going to be able to function. And that was the lesson that came for me out of the book. It was something that I already, I already took that view beforehand, but it, my conviction of that became stronger as the book as the book went on. And I think also what's important is to recognise that that in the United States there are various kind of economic issues that are kind of always have to be looked at. Uh, In this particular period, the Americans had, the United States had a problem, which was that they were not yet confident about their economic future. Now, we think of the fact of the period after World War II, the period from the 1950s through to the 1970s, as being a great period of economic prosperity, a kind of long boom, a long economic expansion, which didn't really reach its end until um, we get to the presidency of Richard Nixon, reached its end about 1972, 1973. Now, at that time, people weren't confident about that. In 1949, 1950, people really weren't confident about their economic future. They were worried. They were always worried that they might lapse back into the kind of problems you'd had in the 1930s during the Great Great Depression. That issue of confidence, I think, is really central. Um, it was only really in the mid-50s when Eisenhower was the president that confidence really sort of built up and returned in the United States in a kind of sustainable way. Prior to that, confidence was always a little bit on the fragile side. I think that's an important thing, too, that... that America is a country where economic issues of economic competencies are really tremendously important. At the moment, we have a situation, I think in 2023, where we're actually, the economy is doing pretty well. Uh, not doing badly at all, unemployment very low, but people don't necessarily feel confident about the future. And you've got to address that issue of confidence. If people don't feel confident about the future, they're not going to be able to to come together in any kind of con- political con- consensus on the home front, and they're not necessarily going to have a, a clear, decisive, and coherent strategy abroad uh, uh, as well. And I think so that issue of confidence is something that's absolutely central here. A lot of the problems that I'm talking about here in, in this book, the kind of polarization and the discord that existed and is symbolized by Joseph McCarthy a lot of that arose from the fact that people really weren't confident about the future if they had been confident about the future I don't think they would have succumbed to that kind of bitterness and strife and polarization I think that's still an issue now in 2023 uh, for us now until people recover that kind of sense of confidence then you're not going to see the country uh, recover its unity either
0: what, uh, 70 years later uh, after uh, Great Britain and the United States won the and stalin for that matter won the world war ii uh here here we are we have 800 bases around the world we have a couple million people under arms uh, you know we're involved all over the place did we win or lose world war ii
2: oh i think we definitely won world war ii definitely definitely oh no question about that um i think i i, I think we're actually in a different world now I, I think that's one of the things we have to come the terms is that the victories of World War II and the world that was created after World War II, a world which was divided ideologically but nevertheless had a kind of coherence to it, that really doesn't exist anymore. I think we've got to recognize that, that things have moved on, things have changed. Um, the current world is one which feels much more disordered, I think that's because it is much more disordered, it's a much more difficult one to understand, but that's kind of inevitable. Uh, given the way that you've seen the, the, the rise economic rise of, of countries that in those days were poor and agrarian, I'm talking about China and India, not just China and India but other countries too, countries like Indonesia, countries like Bangladesh, countries with very large populations which have, have grown economically and which are asserting themselves on the world stage, we've got to face the fact that the world is more complicated than it was. So, yes, I think definitely Britain, the United States and the Soviet Union did win World War II. But I think we've got to recognize that, that we're now in a different situation. Um, we're in a different kind of world with different kinds of stresses, different kinds of strains, different kinds of contradictions. There's a limited value in looking back always to World War II. Now, in this book in my book, in The Shadow of I do look back to that period. But one of the things I'm looking back to is a period when things were changing in a big way. Suddenly, for the first time, the United States had to think about the fact that there were two big countries, Russia and China, in ninety four and 1950, who were potentially hostile, who were allied with each other. That had never existed before. Today, we have other great big challenges that have not necessarily existed before. So we've actually got to sort of move with the times. And there's always this problem, I think, in writing, in writing history and trying to look back, was you've obviously got to look for parallels, you've got to try and understand the present in terms of the past, but you've also got to be prepared to accept the fact that there are times when things suddenly change in a new way. And when the past, although it's interesting and important and relevant, isn't necessarily as central as as we might think it is.
0: So because you wrote a book on Benjamin Franklin, I have to ask you, if he came back today, of course he's not coming back today, but if he came back today, what would he, what do you think he would think of what's happened since, uh, since the revolution? Well, I think there are
2: certain things he'd be very pleased about. I think it's very important to to, to, to recognize this as kind of an, an optimistic conclusion, which is that he would be delighted by the America's scientific infrastructure. Now, this is a thing I think which gets neglected about Franklin. Uh, we, we like to think about Franklin as, as the author of Poor Richard's Almanac, as a, as a witty man, a man of letters. We like to think of him as one of the authors of the, of, the, of the Constitution of 1787. We like to think of his role in the Revolutionary War and as a diplomat in Paris. But remember, Franklin was also a scientist. One his great achievement in, in the early part of his life was his work with electricity and his work to begin creating institutions like the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia and so on. And I think what Franklin would be absolutely delighted about America is the depth and the strength of America's scientific infrastructure. He would be fascinated by that kind of thing. He'd be fascinated by Tesla, for example. He'd be fascinated by by AI. He'd be fascinated also by advances in in, 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 in genetics, he'd be fascinated by the, the, the discoveries of pharmaceutical companies, and so, all those kinds of be but he'd be fascinated and he'd be very pleased indeed to see all your great universities uh, all across the country and all the tremendous amount of scientific research that goes on. So that's the thing I think he would be delighted by and I think he would probably see that as being if you like, what he thinks America actually does best. And I think he would find that a great cause of optimism of the future. So I don't think he would come back and he would say, well, isn't it terrible that you know our constitution is dysfunctional? Isn't it terrible that we've got these parties fighting each other? He'd say, yeah, those things are terrible. But on the other hand, you've got this enormous strength, which is the thing he tried to create in the 1740s, which is a huge amount of scientific talent, a huge amount of scientific infrastructure, not only the talent and the ingenuity and the intellectual enterprise, but also the institutions to keep it going, whether they are universities or research laboratories or whatever they might be. So I think you know he, he would actually be optimistic about the future. Through your book, you talked about other
0: books. Uh, back in that time period, what what other books had a major impact on the on the uh, the dialogue in the United States?
2: Well, there are a number of very interesting books published at that period. Uh, there were a whole series of, of interesting books that appeared in the end of 1949 and, and early in 1950, dealing with the circumstances of the Cold War. Now, of course, the most famous book that appeared at that period was George Orwell's novel 1984 which appeared in the summer of 1949. It was an instant bestseller in America. It was an instant bestseller in the UK. It made a great big impact and it kind of influenced people's thinking about the future because of course it portrayed a world that had been shaped by nuclear conflict. So that was a hugely influential book. There was another one that appeared called The God That Failed which was a book which actually was in in the United Kingdom but which was very popular in the United States. That was a book about former communists who had ceased to be communists People in the 1930s had been communists and then ceased to be communists after that period. That was a very influential book because it became the basis for a kind of a new form of intellectual anti-communism at the time. And there was also another interesting book, which came out actually a little bit later in 1951, which was by William F. Buckley, Jr., uh, God and Man at Yale, uh, which I deal with uh, in the book. I deal with the circumstances in which God and Man at Yale came to, be, came to be written. And that's very important because, of course, that was really the beginning of a kind of new form of cultural neoconservatism, which came to be very influential later. really didn't have its full effect until the 1960s and 70s, but again, that book appeared at this period it was published in 1951 but it was actually based upon a, a, a speech which Buckley was wanting to give at the Yale Alumni Day in the uh, in uh, February 1950 but he wasn't allowed to make so that's another book that's very important there are a whole series um it was a period actually we sort of forget this it was actually a period of great intellectual excitement there are a lot of very interesting writers around there are a lot of very interesting intellectuals around there were some very fine novels being written Um, there were some excellent films too. Culturally, it was a fascinating period. And one of the great things about writing the book, one of the things I really enjoyed was the fact there was so much material of that kind to draw upon. Not only from from writing, but also from the cinema and, and a really excellent journalism too. All of which I could draw upon to, you know, paint my picture of the period.
0: Why did you open one of your chapters with Ernest Hemingway?
2: Ah, well, Ernest Hemingway, of course, was one of the writers who was active at the time. And he wrote a novel, uh, which was published in 1950, called Across the River and Into the Trees. And it was his first novel for 10 years. His previous novel, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, had come out in 1940, hugely successful, of course, subject to the great film with Ingrid Bergman and, and Gary Cooper. But he had he'd been kind of silent from a fictional point of view. And he brought out Across the River and Into the Trees in 1950, and it was hated by the critics. Personally, I think it's a rather better book than people give it credit for. Some of the writing is really excellent. But it was hated by the critics, and one reason why it was hated by the critics was because it's kind of such an embittered book. It's full of embittered reflections upon the kind of disillusionment that he felt after World War II. Um, he felt that somehow or other the kind of the, the, the idealism and the and the and the um of, of World War II had kind of been lost. And it also contains some extremely rude comments about Harry Truman. Let me read and Hans- some rude Let me just read a
0: paragraph here. We'll we'll wrap this up soon. Uh, This is quoting from the book, uh, I mean, from Hemingway. I'm not nor have ever been an unsuccessful haberdasher, said Hemingway's central character in the novel, an aging Army colonel. I have none of the qualifications for the presidency. Now we are governed in some way by the dregs. We are governed by what you find in the bottom of dead beer glasses that whores have dunked their cigarettes in. Pretty strong stuff.
2: Yeah, I think you can see why some people felt rather <laughs> upset by that book. Um, I, yeah, yeah, that was, was Ernest Hemingway's view of Harry Truman. He puts it, as, a, as you say, into, into the mouth of his central character in the novel, is this, this army colonel but nevertheless it's it's a very vicious thing to say about Harry Truman it's probably the single most vicious comment anybody ever made about Harry Truman and I think but it's important really for, for two reasons one is that well one is that it shows that at this particular point in his life Harry, Hemingway was Hemingway's talent maybe was a little bit in decline but I think what's all important about it is it just shows just how embittered and angry many people felt I mean Hemingway clearly felt very embittered and very angry. you know, quite extraordinarily angry and embittered. And I think that was kind of symptomatic. There were many other people who felt similarly angry and embittered by, by what they saw around them in 1950. Uh, and obviously, from a different point of view, sometimes their politics may not be the same as Hemingway. But it, I used that quotation because I thought it would emblematize the atmosphere of America on the eve of the Korean War. Where'd you get the title? In the Shadow of Fear? That comes, that's a quotation from the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. Now, this was a time when Bertrand Russell was was really in his heyday. I mean, he was immensely famous in the UK. He was famous in the United States as well, quite a controversial figure. And he wrote a book in 1949 called Values in the Atomic Age. And um, the epigraph of the book, I think the the passage actually is speaking from memory, um, that uh, we must all accept the fact that we're living in the shadow of fear. And what he was talking about was the atomic bomb he he wanted to, his, his book was an attempt a at kind of a philosophical reflection on the implications of the existence of these new weapons of mass destruction and so that's where the title came from now later a few years later bertrand russell became one of the leaders of the international movement for nuclear disarmament that was after the um the hydrogen bomb test in 1954. at this particular point he was less convinced about the dangers of, of atomic warfare, but nevertheless, he still felt that it was kind of a decisive moment in the history of civilization. He felt it was a dangerous moment, and he felt that it was a fearful and anxious moment. And again, that's something that I wanted to, to use his, his, his quota, that quotation from him, kind of express that kind of mood of anxiety, which was kind of, to some extent, pervasive in 1949 and 1950.
0: Have you started your next book?
2: Well, I'm, I'm considering another book. Um, I, yeah, I've started work on it. You know, I, I tend to be quite superstitious about these things. I don't like talking about products until I actually know they're going to happen. But I mean, I'm considering another book, which would be a, a book about, a period about four or five years later. Uh, I'd be dealing, instead of dealing with 1950, I'd be dealing with the year 1954 and 1955. That's another very interesting period because that's the period when the French lost the war in Vietnam, with the, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, where they were, where they were defeated uh it's the point at which the hydrogen bombs were actually being tested they weren't simply being um dreamt up in a laboratory they're actually being tested and it's also the point at which eisenhower was really emerging as the great deed that he would become uh, he was elected November 1952 came into office January 1953, but it's really in the middle of 1954 and then 1955 that Eisenhower really stamped his authority on the United States. And I'd be exploring some of the same issues as I did in, in, in The Shadow of Fear, but I'd be sort of moving them four or five years forward into a new period. And that was also a fascinating period because it was the period of something called the Bandung Conference. Uh, the Bandung Conference uh, was uh, a great conference held in 1955 in, in Indonesia. Uh, it was a conference attended by the, what we would now call the, the countries of the Global South, uh, Indonesia, India, China, and so on. It was a great moment because it was, it was a moment at which you would start to see the emergence of the Global South as a political force on the world scene. And, and that occurred, as say, in 1955, just five years after the events I was dealing with this book. So that's what my next book, I hope, will be about. But as I say, I tend to be rather wary about talking about new projects just in case they don't come to pass.
0: Well, this is about the 1950s area, early 50s, in the shadow of fear, America and the world in that year, and we thank you Nick Bunker for joining us.
2: Thank you very much, bro. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.